Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that contemplates issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including Toyota Corolla gets an upgrade. Sydney seeks operators for city centre bike hubs. Saudi Arabia to produce electric cars and the Mini Moke goes electric. And in our features, two years ago, we road tested the Toyota Granvia. That's the replacement for the Tarago People Mover. Ugly on the outside, but with six captain's chairs, rather comfortable on the inside. We took five adults on a Sunday drive, but now they've upgraded the model, we thought we would test it from another potential market, the young family. And our second feature is I was a presenter at a recent webinar run by the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. The session was titled Modelling Data Collection and Workflow Planning. Sounds a bit dry, but it is something that affects us all. Rather than getting technical, I asked how are the results being used and how could all this work? be better used to help the community more than just validating a proposed project. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. So to get this program going that was first broadcast on the 12th of November 2022, let's start with the news. Toyota has updated its Corolla hatch and sedan, introducing connected services functionality, a new multimedia system and the latest generation hybrid powertrain. Like other emergency systems, Toyota Connected Services can provide assistance in the event of an emergency, where the airbags are deployed or if a collision is detected, by automatically notifying an emergency call centre and allowing the driver to communicate with the operator. You can also make a call manually to help authorities find the vehicle in the event of it being stolen, for example. On selected models, owners are able to remotely check information about their vehicle, such as remaining fuel or driving range, whether the doors are locked or whether the windows are up or down. Owners can also remotely lock the car, start the ignition and activate the horn or hazard lights or get directions to find it in a parking lot. Blind spot monitoring has been added across the hatch range, while lane trace assist has been expanded to include the emergency driving stop feature that has been designed to bring the vehicle to a gradual stop if it detects the driver is no longer making vehicle inputs. Both the sedan and hatch are priced before on-road costs from $28,130 for a straight petrol version. Hybrid will cost an extra $2,500 on any of the three specification levels. Now, the top spec ZR is $1,500 dearer in the sedan than the hatch, with the ultimate hybrid model price before on-road costs at $37,620 for the hatch and $39,120 for the sedan. The City of Sydney is calling for operators to manage two end-of-trip facilities for bike riders in the city centre. The larger of the two will be a new underground cycling facility that has been created within the Lend-Lease 53-storey tower development near Circular Quay. A second existing facility is based at the Westpac development in Barangaroo and is ready to occupy. It is intended that both end-of-trip facilities will be used by the general public on a membership basis. 
The Lend-Lease facility will be the biggest and have 200 bike racks and spaces for cargo bikes, tandems, e-bikes and charging outlets, 14 male and 14 female showers, 400 lockers with electronic keypads, two unisex accessible toilet and showers facilities, bike maintenance areas, workshop space including bike storage space and 24-7 access for public cycle facility members. This site also includes new community infrastructure, a business innovative space, retail laneways, public art and a hospitality venue. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman bin Abdulaziz, Prime Minister and Chairman of Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, has announced the first Saudi electric vehicle brand called called Kia. Kia will design, manufacture and sell a range of vehicles, including sedans and SUVs, for consumers in Saudi Arabia and the MENA region, which is a group of countries around the Middle East and North Africa. The company, which is a joint venture between the Investment Fund and Foxconn, will license component technology from BMW. It is projected to create up to 30,000 direct and indirect jobs and directly contribute the equivalent of 8 billion US dollars to Saudi Arabia's GDP by 2034. Foxconn, which is headquartered in Taiwan, is the world's largest technology manufacturer and service provider. Notable products they assemble include iPhones, Kindle, and Nintendo and PlayStation gaming consoles. Back in 1960, and building on the success of the original Mini, BMC bought out the Mini Moke. It was basically a tub with a roll bar and canvas roof and sides. The tub had all the elegance of design of a square children's bathing pool. They were quite popular in Australia with news agents who, when they delivered rolled-up newspapers to houses, they could get a good swing of their arm to throw them from the car, as there was little bodywork in the way. The brand name is now owned by another company, and they have announced that they will be producing an electric version. It will have a little more horsepower than the original, although not by much. The original had 29 kilowatts, while the electric one still has a very modest 33 kilowatts of power. The new electric version has a range of only 120 kilometres and a top speed of just 80 kilometres an hour. They are targeting the UK and US markets at this stage with a price equivalent of around 64,500 Australian dollars. And that has been the news. Two years ago, we road-tested Toyota's Grandvia People Mover. It is based on a Hilux van and looks very square, in fact ugly on the outside, especially from the back. But inside, it's quite luxurious, especially with the three rows of individual captain's chairs. Back then, we took five adults on a weekend trip for which it was well-suited. But what about families? With the new makeover model just released, we went for a picnic trip out of Sydney with a young family, and we hear from the father of the children. Now, for reference, in regard to children's restraints, the anchor points are the strong hooks that you connect the harness-type belt that goes over the shoulder of the child, and if the vehicle has them, they are usually on the floor behind the seat or on the very back of the seat. And ISOFIX is a way of securing the bottom of the child seat into the join between the seat and the backrest, which is where we used to lose small coins. 
This holds the child's seat more firmly, particularly inside impacts, rather than wrapping the adult seatbelt around the chair. And finally, a rear-facing child restraint is for babies, where the child lies well reclined in a capsule, like a bassinet, but made for safety in big crashes, with the head towards the front of the vehicle. Now, here's Matthew's reflections. Matthew, how many children do you have? Three. What ages are they? Five, two and three months. Packing them in? Yeah. What car do you normally drive? Uh, the Hyundai Palisade. Is that serving your needs well? I think so. It's certainly tight when we go on holidays. Because of all the things you need to pack as well? Yeah, yeah. Definitely um, while we've got a portable cot and pram, that takes up most of your space. Once Albie is big enough to sleep in a bed and uh, yeah, walk, but that's still you know, two years away in terms of being able to have him not have a stroller or something like that. You thought about getting a people mover, but was space a problem? Uh, this concern of, like we live in the inner west and park on street, so certainly the size of the vehicle was a consideration. The Palisade, I think, is just under five metres, so it just makes it easier to reverse park. But um, more so, my um, wife, Pia, refused to own a van. A van that just was the wrong image? Yeah, yeah, anything with sliding doors or uh, that van look. She didn't want to be a soccer mum. And the Palisade, the Palisade's a, a really nice looking car and it still looks like a car. It's just a big car, kind of. Um, looks like a big SUV, which it is. Yeah, very much like the, uh, the, it's like a Kluger size. Whereas the Kluger's always been, and that's a good option compared to say like the uh, Sorento or the, the sort of bigger mid-sized ones. The Kluger made no effort at being an all an off-roader. Whereas the Prado does. But I always find like the Toyotas, like this feature-wise, they always lag behind. So at the time, we got like a whole host of features in the Hyundai, I believe, and you'd be able to check that for me, weren't available for, certainly for the same price. So yeah, bigger touchscreen, all of the, uh, the additional sort of safety features. It made it more compelling from your point of view. Yeah, so it was around $70,000 and it was like, you got a lot for that money, which is a lot of money when you say $70,000 for your Hyundai. I don't think uh, 10 years ago, no one would have uh, thought Hyundai's would be selling for that sort of price, but you get a lot of car for that price. Fitting the kids into this Grand VR, which is really set up with well, it's not really, it is set up with captain's chairs. How did fitting the child seats in go with that? Yeah, it's definitely because they're like a uh, like a gold class stadium seat. They have the sides, so solid sides, which um, make for increased comfort, but in, near impossible to put an ISO fix uh, child seat in the bottom support. Um, so the armrests aren't fold down armrests, they're... They're like, as you say, a lounge chair. Yeah, exactly. An armchair. Yeah, an armchair with sides. And, and now that's a, it's a problem. You, you know, if you're a family, you probably only have to deal with, you know, once every couple of months. Once when you put them in, and then if you need to move it to do something. But it, it was a lot harder than if, you know a standard sort of bench seat in our palisade. You can get access either side to to get to the clips. Is that true for a forward or a rear-facing seat? 
Yeah, so the the anchor point is the same for forward and rear facing. In terms of travelling, did the kids like it? Yeah, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I don't know if it's the the mixture of it just being new, as it is the new the novelty, or and and then no, it would be the space as well and the the reclining. They love putting their feet up, and it, it does feel like a quite a premium kind of experience sitting in a big armchair as a little kid. They had an ottoman function that the support under your calves of your legs electronically comes out. That proved to be quite a feature for them, didn't it? Yeah, despite the fact that I don't think their feet reached that far. The five-year-old could, but the two-year-old told me she, her feet didn't reach. But even just the full recline with, uh, you know, while a lot of cars have that, they're not button operated, not, not electronic. And so the kids were able to sort of press the button and go into full recline mode. Yeah, so they could have a sleep, well, preferably not while driving. Well, they could sleep sitting up while driving, but you wouldn't want them to lie down from a safety point of view. But nonetheless, they loved the idea of being able to play with that. Yeah, and you can get a a little bit of recline going on while they're still in the child seat. Is the five-year-old asleep? It is, and I'm looking at him now. I've probably got the seat too upright, so his head's gum come forward. To be able to lay it back a bit. Well, of course, the seat belts. You've got anchor points on the three rows for the for the child anchor point. Yes, so all four seats have. So the, the the second row and the third row, the four seats all have anchor points. That's important because in the Palisade, they're only on the side of the 60, isn't it? 60-40 split. Yes, so we, we've got the seven-seater Palisade, which has two seats in the middle row and three seats in the back row, which in theory you know, could give you five anchor points, but the, the back right side doesn't have an anchor point, so that cuts you down to four, but because the back row is so small, you can't put two seats together, so it really cuts you down to three effective child seat restraint. But the good thing about the Palisade is you can, in the second row of seats, you can get between them? Yeah, yeah, so that that's the, it comes in a seven and eight seat configuration, and in the seven seat configuration, there's no um, middle seat in the middle row, uh, which allows you to, yeah, shuffle up the back. Although it is, it's not as tall, like it's definitely very handy and I've used it quite a lot, but when you're in this car, the head height means that that being able to shuffle up the middle is even more effective. To strap the kids in, make sure everything's working. Yeah, yeah. you should uh, see me trying to get uh, Xavier, if he's fallen asleep, in in the palisade, you're trying to lift, but you're effectively kneeling and you're trying to get a sleeping child out of the back without waking them. It's, uh, it's quite hard, whereas in this one, you can get a bit more room to pick him up and carry two children in car seats in the second row you then cramp your space a lot don't you to get to the third row particularly if one of those child seats is rear facing yeah so like having two in the center is not too bad because you've got the gap down the middle it's having three and so a lot of people will have three across the middle which then effectively means you can't get to the back and they're also they're in grabbing distance of each other so uh, <laughs> having two in them in the middle is good because you've got that space so the set the center row and then there's an open space in between them 
keeping the children apart, the captain's chairs is really good for that, isn't it? 100%, yeah. And uh, it just gives them a little bit of their own space. And, you know, they've got cup holders and they can have their, their uh, yogurts and their stuff that they, for travel. But you can also then move the two rows of seats, row two and row three, forward and back quite a lot, I think, within in the Grandvia. In the Grandvia, you could actually move them quite enough forward and squeeze in a bench seat in the back. This is not for families. This is because you'd have absolutely no carrying room, but it is for perhaps picking up people at airports. But they're quite two different functions. Yeah, and I didn't realise that you could do that sliding in the seats. And as I got the car, the back rows were slid so far back, I couldn't fit the pram in the back of the car. So I was putting it down the middle of the car. But yeah, since you've since told me that I could have shuffled the centre row and the back row of seats all forward to give myself more boot space. And there's plenty of room. Like it's, it's massive. Like the, the, the centre row, as I have it configured, has almost a metre, a full metre of leg room. Hmm. which is just not needed. I could have used that in the boot. <laughs> it does make getting in easier, though, doesn't it? Uh, and, and, and then back to the, the third row. Yeah, 100%. If you, if you moved it forward, yeah, you, would then, you do get a bit tight, but you get a boot. All right, Matthew, thank you very much. No worries. You're listening to Overdrive. I was one of the presenters at a recent webinar run by the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. The session was titled Modelling Data Collection and Workflow Planning. Sounds a bit dry, but it is something that affects us all. Governments and companies collect data and use computer models to try and predict what will happen if a project is built or, more rarely, if societal changes occur, such as more people working from home. This and other similar sessions usually focus on how to improve the modelling process, and that is a good thing. But my approach was to emphasise the need to look more closely at how the results from the modelling are used, misused or ignored, and how we might make more of this professional work to help people understand what are the real issues and consequences of major projects and community changes. Here is my presentation. Many, many people have expressed a concern about systemic problems in the processes in which transport modelling is a contributor. I believe a helpful strategy is to expand our engagement with a wide range of stakeholders over time, more than our role of being seen to produce conclusions, particularly towards the end of the process. It starts with the data we collect, why we collect it, how we use it, and how it relates to people more than just being numbers to fit our models. We need to actively give insights that engage all participants, including the community, well before deductions are made. I had a career-forming experience in my early working life. I was in government and working with others on running a model of the whole Sydney transport network, rail and road. With some difficulties, we finally produced the first output on a Friday afternoon, but had not done any calibration, any fine tuning. But on the weekend, a press release was issued that began with the words something like, after extensive computer analysis, we have decided to build this big project. The core of our problem is that our role is seen mainly as producing conclusions towards the latter part or at the end 
of a long process. Furthermore, our results can be compromised by proponent demands and are often misused. Of course, we present the results in detail. List of assumptions, range of the likely outcome. But we all know that the assumptions are not going to make it into the press release. And when he was President of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson asked an executive for a number that showed the impact and justified a proposed project. The executive gave him a range. LBJ is reported to have said, ranges are for cattle, give me a number. It is usually far too late, or certainly much harder, to try and convince stakeholders, including politicians and the community, at the end of a process. And technical excellence is rarely, if ever, seen as a justification for a conclusion, unless of course it agrees with the original desired outcome, which for successful operators, this is usually the case. People cherry-pick the results, or ignore them, and rely on obvious conclusions, the pub test. John Reed from Traffic, and I note that I collaborate with him on issues to do with the profession, but not on his survey business, was the executive producer of a series of videos called Heroes of Data. One quote is from Sherlock Holmes, who said, There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. There is a movement now that has been called data journalism. It's not just about getting headlines in a mainstream media, and certainly not shouting opinions about solutions. But we first have to get the right data we must put more focus on broader community understanding rather than concentrate on collecting for specific projects and not collect data just to quantify our existing perceptions, but to discover new things. There's no such thing as typical. Yet we cut back on data collection during the worst of COVID to wait until things got back to normal, whatever that means. Now, last year, David Hencher held a panel discussion in which Professor Phil Goodwin from the UK responded to this situation in academic terms. Completely daft to stop surveying <laughs> during, during COVID. Uh, you know, even if you're going to be completely sort of cynical and brutal and, and hard-minded about this, what a splendid social experiment to see how people respond to an unexpected emergency. At least one group in the UK pushed against the tide and collected data during COVID. This CIHT podcast is well worth listening to. A significant problem is measurement is dominated by how we travel, not why. In another one of John's videos for an AITBM webinar, he used comments from Liz Ampt, and Michael Caltabiano. Liz Amp's special area of expertise is household transport surveys, where you measure in detail what are the situations and opportunities in households that lead to the trips that are made. If you just look at patterns of people's trips, you have no idea why they're doing it, and therefore you can't use any of that data really for planning. That is the direction of the future, David. I mean, behaviours, why people do what they do when they interact with a transportation system is something that we've at Arbath very focused on. We have actually got psychologists within the business 
unpacking those stories and journeys, why people want to do what they want to do, so that we can enable those journeys. It is also fashionable now to quote big data, which has a place, but which is averaging out situations and missing the nuances, which often tell us a lot about potential areas for change. Perhaps the saddest reflection is that we treat data collection as just another cost item to be slashed to save money. What then should we do with the good data? Well, I think firstly compile insights and get them into the debate. This is way before any conclusions. It's all about creating the narrative. Governments might want to control the modelling to be able to control the stories around the outcomes, the narrative. Stories can be helpful and they don't have to be about the final conclusions. I go back to my early experience. One story I often tell from that modelling process was how hard old bus timetables were to comprehend. Our expert coders struggled and there were four timetables they could not determine where the routes went. So I tell the story to lead to discussion of what technical people are doing now to make information easily available. If the first thing people hear from us is a conclusion or a patronising instruction, then we may be sending an unintentional message of, we've done the work, so shut up and listen. But an insight can be a starting point for engagement. And we must not rush to follow an insight with our own conclusions. Let people ponder on a thought and then listen to their response. A very simple example. So much of the public discussion is still about trips to the CBD. We might know the CBD does not create the majority of trips, but I know of recent examples in the media where this was still presented as the whole story and it skewed the discussion. Should we just quote some numbers? I think we need to consider all powers of language to help. In the mid-90s, I presented a paper at an ARRB conference titled Transport Planning, a profession in need of metaphor. You see, we call the CBD the heart of the city, fed by arterial corridors. In a body, all blood goes to the heart and out again. This is not the case for the transport task. It is more like fish in the ocean, with some reefs attracting a little bit more activity. One reviewer thought it was an inappropriate topic for a technical conference. Now, you might not like my metaphor, so... Think of something else. Chris Stapleton encourages people to look at traffic on main roads and see how many vehicles are making turns. In other words, not going straight through. Here's another example. At the AITBM National Conference, Sydney Lord Mayor Clover Moore noted that 92% of trips in Sydney CBD during the day are walking. I try to personalise this by quoting the figure and then asking questions such as, so why does a lot of modern architecture not include awnings against the rain and the sun? Transport is not just about capacity. Insights are not just quirky facts. Where does modelling fit into this? Well, looking at scenarios rather than trying to accurately predict the future is a very good start. But it's still a long process. I ponder the possibilities that Professor David Hencher has with his modelling package that incorporates transport, land use, and societal factors. He says that he can get an indicative output from a model run in about 40 minutes. 
So rather than the define and defend approach, what about a back and forth process with the stakeholders, including the community? But before we start modeling, we should show some insights from our data, including unexpected facts, and always ask what other ways could we spend this sort of money? Then we will run some models, even with some left field suggestions, and in a short time give some feedback, not in the style of yes it will work or no it won't, not even just these are the projected volumes. We should use results to prompt more discussion. Maybe something like, we don't think the railway will work well enough without a bus feeder system. What sort of bus network would you use? Or, these are the land use changes that could reasonably happen. How should we plan for that? Or David's model can even code in what might happen if we have another COVID situation. So my conclusions. We have to change the nature and timing of our input so we can engage more effectively. We are not just about reaching conclusions. We have to learn how to start conversations rather than seeing our role as ending them. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Matthew Brown, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>